0: The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, prevention, diagnosis, counseling, treatment, or other services. Always consult a mental health professional before engaging in any activities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy.
1: Hello, all you magical people out there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Harry Potter Therapy. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy.
0: And I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch.
1: So today we are going to be covering The Chamber of Secrets, Chapter 9, The Writing on the Wall. As I mentioned in the last episode, Hermione, Harry, and Ron stumble onto Mrs. Norris hanging on a torch bracket next to that mysterious writing on the wall. The writing on the wall says, the Chamber of Secrets has been opened, enemies of the air beware.
0: What's that? The Chamber of Secrets has been opened,
2: enemies of the air beware. It's written in blood. It's cat, Mrs.
1: Could you imagine being a kid and stumbling onto what looks like a dead cat and some creepy writing on the wall?
0: That would be terrifying, I think, for anyone of any age, but especially for 12 year old kids. Just seeing that, I imagine, would be traumatizing, potentially.
1: Oh, most definitely. And it was almost in blood, so it's like stumbling onto this site. <laughs> well, it doom. is
0: written in blood. It is, huh? It's written in rooster blood.
1: When do we find that? out? Later in the book. Ah. Spoilers. Very cheeky. So students begin to exit the Great Hall nearby after the feast ends, and as you can imagine, this kind of thing would start to grow a crowd. Eventually, Mr. Filch starts pushing students out of the way and sees his cat Mrs. Norris hanging and understandably he freaks out.
2: What's going on out? Go on my way, my way.
1: Even though there's a large crowd and no other students were questioned about anything, Filch immediately starts accusing Harry for murdering his cat. Can you discuss the topic of accusations and how they can affect the accused?
0: Well, I think in Filch's case, we're seeing perhaps a form of almost like a confirmation bias where someone is maybe expecting someone else to do something bad or behave a certain way. And so anytime they see any kind of suspicious behavior, they use that as evidence to confirm their previous belief, making the bias toward that individual stronger. As far as for Harry, for example, being accused in that situation can be, for some people, traumatic as well. You know, in terms of When we're innocent and someone is accusing us of having done something wrong, if it looks like a lot of people are starting to believe that person and if it looks like we have not a lot of ways of defend ourselves and defend our innocence, that can be really devastating for that person. So I can imagine Harry being really overwhelmed. And in the past, when he was living with the Dursleys, When he was in trouble, that meant really bad consequences. That could mean that he would be beaten or starved for a long period of time. And so I imagine that he's probably quite frightened here and probably also really angry about being accused in this way.
1: Oh, most definitely. Eventually, professors join.
2: Everyone will proceed to the dormitories immediately. Everyone except you three.
1: While being interrogated by most of the professors, Filch claims that Harry must have done it because he knows that Filch is a squib. Just for the record, Harry doesn't even know what a squib is. And in the book, Ron says that Filch is bitter.
2: Ask him. He said he it. You saw what he wrote on the wall. It's not true, sir, I swear. I never touched Mrs. Norris. Rubbish. Not kept. has been petrified.
1: Do you think he is bitter, or what do you think is the real reason that Filch is behaving this way towards Harry?
0: It's a really, really interesting question. I'm a big fan of Brene Brown, who is a researcher, a storyteller. She studies shame and vulnerability, and she talks about blame as a way of dislodging painful emotions. And I think that it's possible that Filch is ashamed and it's really sad and heartbreaking that someone would be ashamed over perhaps a disability or an inability, in this case, to perform magic. I think because he's struggling with that, he's likely to blame other people around him for different events that might not have anything to do with one another. So I think that he was so vulnerable when he figured out that Harry knew that Filch was a squib, that he was looking for anyone to blame and then seeing his cat probably the only being he's ever loved the only being that's ever loved him we're making assumptions here of course but seeing someone very close to him potentially dead, he is unsurprisingly going to pick someone that he's already suspicious of, that he already thinks is likely to out him and shame him. And so I think that Filch throwing the blame on Harry here is very much him projecting his own hurt and dislodging that pain by creating blame onto another person.
1: It almost makes you feel a little sad for Filch a little bit.
0: I do. I have a lot of compassion for Filch. I don't agree with his actions, Mm -hmm. but I have compassion for the pain that he's going through. And you got to think in this community, if you're not magical, you're other and you're not accepted. And so the prejudice is in some ways no better in the wizarding community than it is in the muggle community.
1: Oh, most definitely. And
0: so Petunia not being accepted and Filch probably not being accepted in this community is, I imagine, very painful, and Filch has to live with daily reminders of not fitting in.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it would definitely encourage that kind of behavior that they're having anyway. An interesting thing happens during the interrogation. Dumbledore explains to Filch that Miss Norris has only been petrified and can be cured with a potion.
2: She's not dead, August. She has been petrified. Ah, for of-
1: so unlucky i wasn't there i know exactly the counter curse that could have spared her when lockhart boasts that he can make the potion in his sleep snape rips him a new one i mean i have to say i really enjoyed when snape put lockhart in his place snape was the only person up to that point who actually stood up to lockhart's overbearing presence And he basically says, "Excuse me, I'm the potions master at this school, Snape." It makes it it, it makes me think of that Snape song. Snape, Snape, Snape. Severus Snape. Snape. Snape, Snape, Snape. Savaras Snipe. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, this really got me thinking about those really assertive personalities, though. You know, the ones that intimidate and essentially force you to do something you're really uncertain about, but you do anyways because they're so persistent. Kind of like sleazy salesmen. You know that they're full of it, but you buy from them anyway. Why do some people go along with someone like Lockhart and... What could one do to protect themselves from a personality like that?
0: I actually think that rather than assertive, Lockhart is being full on aggressive here. He's pushy and, as you said, really persistent. He is so pushy with not wanting to stand back, with wanting everyone to see his abilities, that he causes more harm than good. And Snape is actually the one displaying assertive behavior here by saying, excuse me, I am the potions master here, and Mm -hmm. actually setting a boundary. I think that some people, when faced with someone who is as pushy and persistent as Lockhart might inevitably back down because maybe they don't want to argue with someone like that, whereas others, like I imagine that might be what Dumbledore was doing, might actually just want to step back and see what this person is going to do maybe kind of waiting for them to fail Mm -hmm. and so i imagine that dumbledore agreeing to let lockhart take matters into his own hands at least in some instances in this book was probably because dumbledore knew that lockhart wouldn't succeed and i think mcgonagall at several points does that as well and so the best way to protect ourselves when someone is being pushy is very much like severus did is to set a very firm boundary as in No, I will not allow this, right? I am the one that is going to do any kind of potion making around here, for example, or no, I'm not able to do this. And you can keep asking if you want, but this is my boundary. You cannot cross it. And so when people are being pushy, we have to be very firm in our boundaries in terms of letting that person know that we're not going to give in just because they keep pushing and pressing.
1: Those kind of personalities are a little rough sometimes to deal with.
0: And sometimes hostile.
1: Yeah, it's pretty wild. So on a lighter note, like a see-through lighter note, uh, this chapter introduces us to the history of Magic Professor, and his name is Cuthbert Benz, or Professor Benz. And he also happens to be a ghost. He's like one of the only ghost professors in Hogwarts, which is kind of cool. After Hermione asks Professor Binns about the Chamber of Secrets, he tells them the story of the Four Founders. And in the movie, Professor McGonagall tells this story about the Chamber of Secrets.
2: Yes, Miss Granger. Professor, I was wondering if you could tell us about the Chamber of Secrets. Very well. Well, you all know, of course, that Hogwarts was founded. Over a thousand years ago, by the four greatest witches and wizards of the age Godric Gryffindor, Helga Hufflepuff, Rowena Ravenclaw, and Salazar Slytherin. Now, three of the founders coexisted quite harmoniously, one did not. Three guesses who? Salazar Slytherin wished to be more selective about the students admitted to Hogwarts. He believed magical learning should be kept within all magic families, in other words, purebloods. Unable to sway the others, he decided to leave the school. Now, according to legend, Slytherin had built a hidden chamber in this castle known as the Chamber of Secrets. Well, shortly before departing, he sealed it until that time when his own true heir returned to the school. The heir alone would be able to open the chamber and unleash the horror within, and by so doing, purge the school of all those who, in Slytherin's view, were unworthy to study magic. Mugglebones. Well. Naturally, the school has been searched many times. No such chamber has been found. Professor, what exactly does legend tell us lies within the chamber? Well, the chamber is said to be home to something that only the heir of Slytherin can control. It is said to be the home of a monster.
0: What do
1: you think about this legend and what it entails?
0: I think that in a lot of ways we're seeing not only the origins of the school, but maybe within this community anyway, the origins of racism. We're seeing that Salazar Slytherin was so picky with the kind of students that he would allow into Hogwarts that they had to be only pureblood. It wasn't just that he would only allow magic individuals that he would only want pure bloods, that even half-bloods weren't good enough for him. The fact that he left the school angry and disappointed after quarreling with the other founding members of Hogwarts shows that overall, the majority of Hogwarts did value diversity, at least in some ways, but Salazar Slytherin's anger toward the remaining founders that led him to supposedly leave a curse behind, to leave some kind of a monster behind to haunt the school, shows just how bitter he was that he couldn't accept that he was wrong and he would rather see students die than to agree to taken diverse students and you know students that were not necessarily pure blood
1: yeah that's interesting that it was basically a reflection on racism really
0: at least that's how i took it again i don't know jk rowling's intention but as a reader that's what i took away from it
1: yeah i mean it's pretty symbolic in that direction anyway i think it's safe to assume so in this chapter there are some rumors that are being spread after this event and rumors are very damaging Mm -hmm. unfortunately a huge rumor has been spread around the school that harry is actually the heir of slytherin
2: hey look everyone it's the heir of slytherin be careful he's a seriously evil wizard (laughs) oh come on harry friend george is just having a laugh they're the only ones
1: can you talk about the power of rumors and the best way to approach them?
0: Wow, that's a a really powerful question. I think rumors can be very toxic. Regardless of who is involved in these rumors, I think that rumors can really hurt a person, even seemingly positive rumors, right? Like rumors being spread about someone's sex life, for example, or how attractive someone is or who supposedly had a relationship with whom i think that a lot of times these rumors can have long lasting very damaging effects on the people that are involved in these rumors and we're seeing this huge rise in teen suicides unfortunately teen suicide now is the second leading cause of teen death You know, in the country, it's horrible. And a lot of times it has to do with bullying and rumors. And so I think that we have to be very careful when rumors are being spread. And I think that it's really important for people to acknowledge that something is a rumor, to not continue spreading this rumor. For teens, it's really important to first of all, not continue spreading the rumor themselves and maybe even address the source if they know the source or bring it up to an adult like a teacher, for example. For teachers, if they realize that a rumor is being spread, it's also really important to address it with the people involved and to make sure that they take the situation seriously. Here... The rumors about Harry are being spread, and even the teachers seem to be aware of the rumors, but no one is doing anything. Harry's kind of on his own, other than maybe his friends, fighting off all of these rumors, everyone who believes him to be the heir of Slytherin, people bullying him, accusing him, turning into, kind of a pun on words here, a witch hunt, you know, and no one except for Ron and Hermione is standing up for him. I think that Hogwarts teachers in this situation should have done more to protect Harry and to address these rumors.
1: Yeah, most definitely. You know, Harry, Hermione, and Ron are very inquisitive. And this is a mystery, you know, this blood on the wall and water on the ground and a hanging petrified cat. So they go back to investigate. And there's a point where Hermione points out a line of 20 spiders hurrying to get outside a window. It's a very strange behavior for spiders. We find out in this moment, though, that Ron has arachnophobia and is afraid of spiders.
2: Strange. I've never seen spiders act like that. To like spiders.
1: Evidently, when he was three years old, his brother Fred turned his teddy bear into a big spider mm-hmm. and he hated them ever since. I mean, that's horrible. That would horrible. be completely traumatizing poor as a kid. Ron,
0: <laughs> right? Like, poor kiddo. Yeah,
1: you could see where it comes from. Can you talk about phobias and how Ron's mm-hmm. experience as a child might have contributed to his lasting fear?
0: Sure. There are a few different types of phobias. The most common one is animal type, such as fear of spiders, insects, rats, you know, mice, things like that. And then also some kind of uh, environmental or situational type. So environmental type might be like a fear of thunderstorms, for example, or fear of fire. Situational type might be claustrophobia, for example, fear of tight spaces, fear of elevators, fear of flying. And so a lot of people experience different kinds of phobias, and phobia is not just a fear, but it's a severe irrational fear that causes the individual to have a freeze-like reaction or a panic attack in that situation, causing them to avoid this situation at all costs. The best way to treat a phobia is actually through very gradual exposure, so through very gradually learning to face that fear. There's a big difference between a very gradual exposure, such as over time learning to face the spiders or maybe making them ridiculous, hint, hint, (laughs) um, or uh, kind of being thrown right into the forbidden forest with a whole lot of them. And so that's called flooding and that might actually make the person's fear worse. The important thing for recovery is actually to have the person face their fear very gradually. For arachnophobia specifically, we know know that certain movies like Spider-Man movies, for example, can help people to reduce their spider phobia. So I've actually always wondered what would happen if Ron ever met (laughs) Spider-Man. Perhaps it would help him to overcome his spider phobia.
1: That would be a very interesting situation. (laughs) So as their investigation continues, the water that was left on the floor leads them into this old dilapidated bathroom and we meet another ghost character in there named Moaning Myrtle. Who?
2: Moaning Myrtle? Who's Moaning Myrtle? I'm Moaning Myrtle. I wouldn't expect you to know me. Who would ever talk about ugly, miserable, moping, moaning Myrtle?
1: Like Nearly Headless Nick, Myrtle has been bullied and is understandably sad. What do you think about Myrtle with regard to the lasting effects of bullying?
0: I think that bullying can create the kind of invisible scars that can stay with us forever. Moaning Myrtle's been dead for 50 years. And 50 years later, she's still really traumatized by being teased and bullied about her glasses and having people throw things at her. And so it's understandable that she's still really hurt. And I think a lot of times people will say things like sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. But that's not true. That's a fallacy. As we can see here, words very much do hurt even years and years later. And into the later. afterlife. Yes, and into the afterlife.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of afterlife, at the end of this chapter, the trio brainstorm on who could actually be the heir of Slytherin. To no surprise, they conclude that it has to be Malfoy, but they want to get some proof before they act on their suspicions, unlike everybody else who's spreading these rumors. With Hermione's help, they come up with a pretty interesting plan to make a potion called Polyjuice Potion. And what Polyjuice Potion does is it can change someone's appearance. They could disguise themselves as one of the other Slytherins and get the truth out of Malfoy themselves in disguise. The only thing is they need to get a book from the restricted section that can teach them how to do this potion. And they also need a teacher who's foolish enough, or as Ron says, thick enough to help them get the book. That's pretty much what's gonna go on in the next chapter a little bit. It's an intro to the next chapter.
0: You know what I was thinking? This transformation is so painful. It's dangerous. The potion takes a month to brew. Wouldn't it have been easier to just use the Vertiserum potion? You're the witch. The truth-telling potion? You're the witch. (laughs) It would be a lot easier.
1: I guess so. But that one's probably even more advanced.
0: Perhaps.
1: (laughs) Who knows? But Polyjuice Potion is a little bit more interesting because of what happens to Hermione. (laughs) But anyway, this is a perfect opportunity for us to end this chapter and episode of Harry Potter therapy. Thank you so much for joining us again. My name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at TheValiantGeek
0: and I'm Dr. Janina Scarlet. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Aquell or Dr. Janina Scarlet Official on Instagram.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay magical out there everybody. Take care.